Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscum All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. Folks, it is lining up to be a long episode again this week. I promise you, I'm going to do my best to try and not take forever, but I uh, have about three pages full here of stories just from the past week. Uh, so to try and condense the time, I'm going to cheat a little bit. So in our Law 140 segment, we're actually going to build off of uh, the segment we had last week talking about defamation. So that's going to be shorter than normal And I'm not going to talk quite as much about politics, and I'm going to talk quickly through the criminal justice stuff. But before we get into the news, wanted to let y'all know the details about the podcast. Please make sure to follow us on Twitter. The account handle is at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. If you are not a subscriber, please go to our website and subscribe, Fiskamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. We had a special subscriber-only podcast that came out on Friday. So if you've missed that, that is our volume two of What the Fisk, where we take a handful of listener questions and answer them for you. Uh, Also, if you have not checked out our Patreon page, that is patreon.com slash fisk, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash F-S-C-K. We do have a community going there. We've got about 22 patrons at this point. Thank you to all of the patrons who are listening in. And one of the things I'm going to try and roll out this coming week is having kind of a legal term a day posted on the uh, the Patreon page. Because as I mentioned in previous podcasts, one of the weird things about the law is that words that we think make normal, logical sense uh, get interpreted differently by lawyers. So we'll be sharing a legal term a day. I want to start it this week, but I got to find my legal dictionary that I've got somewhere. But yes, we actually have legal dictionaries. That's a highlight of how uh, differently we treat certain words. So before we uh, hop into the politics, I do want to give a shout out to one of our Samson sponsors from that Patreon page, Stephen Grady from Michigan. Uh, He's got an American pit bull named Brisket and a tuxedo cat named Sushi. He is one of our Samson sponsors, and I'm going to post some pictures of his animals on the Patreon page later this week. So in the political world, I'm not going to talk too much about our papaya potus, Donald Trump. Uh, I do want to note one story that I thought was interesting. He's talked a little bit about our wall, this border wall that he supposedly wants as he was on his way to France uh, for another meeting just after finishing up the G20. He spoke with some reporters on Air Force One about what he wants that wall to look like. And one of the things he pointed out is, quote, one of the things with the wall is you need transparency. You have to be able to see through it. In other words, if you can't see through that wall, so it could be a steel wall with openings, but you have to have openings because you have to see what's on the other side of the wall. And the reporters thought, you know, this is kind of weird because that's what you call a fence, and we already have a border fence. It already exists. If you ever want to go down to Texas, you can see it. There are actually two different border fences there. So when he was asked to explain himself, the president offered an example. Cantaloupe Caligula said, quote, As horrible as it sounds, when they throw the large sacks of drugs over, and if you have people on the other side of the wall, you don't see them, they hit you on the head with 60 pounds of stuff, it's over. As crazy as that sounds, you need transparency through that wall. I didn't realize the president was so concerned about the health and well-being of drug dealers who will be catching those 60-pound bags of heroin. Uh, Y'all, they don't throw 
bags of drugs over the border. I'm sure they could. I mean, they've built tunnels with uh, rockets and stuff to get some of the uh, El Chapo. Is that the guy's name? To get him out of prison. But that's not how drugs get into the country. And frankly, the biggest drug problem we have at the moment is the opioid epidemic. And opioids are coming from doctors and from anyone with a medical degree or a pharmacy degree just giving these things out willy-nilly. And people will steal them from other people or order them online or God knows what else. So just wanted to uh, point this out that your president remains an idiot. Uh, We're now about 12% of the way through his presidency. We were about six months in. And he has gotten no smarter since his inauguration back in January. The big political story of the week was his son, Donald Trump Jr., and this uh, email where, I don't know if y'all have actually like kept track of the timeline, but it's, it's funny to see how much things have changed just in a st- short span of time. Previously, there had been talk of this supposed meeting with Russians and the campaign staff, and it started out, oh, there was no meeting, never happened. Uh, Then it became, oh, yes, there was a meeting, but it was with some Russian lawyer, and she wanted to talk about adoptions. Then it turned into, well, yeah, there was a lawyer there, and she was offering dirt on Hillary Clinton. Then it became, well, there was a lawyer there, and there was a Russian-American lobbyist there, and there was some other guy there, and then there was another guy there. Um, So all this has come about, and then it just was released a day or two ago uh, that the legal expenses to defend Donald Trump Jr. were paid by the campaign. So under the uh, that was part of the latest FEC report, and y'all for a campaign to pay legal expenses means that those expenses have to be incurred for campaign purposes. So it kind of puts the lie to this whole notion that the meeting was for uh, child adoption or these Magnitsky Act uh, repeal anything like that. So that's been the big story of the week. I will leave it to other political pundits to discuss that. My only note is that things have changed an awful lot. Just in the span of a few months, we've really become kind of the, you know, you hear that story about a frog. If you throw a frog into a pot of boiling water, it will jump right back out. But if you put it in a pot of regular water and then slowly heat it over time, the frog will eventually boil to death because it doesn't realize that the temperature is turning up. Um, The GOP has become the boiling frog of our political system. We've gone from pretending a meeting didn't happen to essentially turning into the party of Soviet apologists. And it's, uh, it's totally disgusting. But hey, such is life. Uh, speaking of other bizarreness within the Republican Party and what used to be a uh, party that represented a healthy skepticism of government, uh, Wesley Lowry, who is at Wesley Lowry uh, on Twitter, shared a Gallup poll regarding law enforcement and faith in law enforcement's abilities. And there are only three groups who are more confident in police today than they were before the Ferguson protests took place. Those groups are white people, conservatives, and Republicans. Everyone else has actually paid attention to uh, cell phone video and all of the other things that have been coming out on a daily basis. We've got several hundred of them listening to Fiskamall right now. Uh, so take that for what you will. The former party of small government now thinks that the police are infallible. Also, in the uh, weird poll news, nearly two-thirds of Republicans say that colleges and universities have a negative impact on the United States. I, I don't even know where to start with this one. So this is a poll from the Pew Research Center. I will include a link to their tweet that has one of the infographics, uh, as well as the link to the full study. I'll include that in the show notes. 
But yeah, apparently the Republican Party thinks that colleges and universities, the people that help educate uh, the sons and daughters of North Carolina, as well as folks all over the country, that used to be one of the things our parents and our grandparents insisted we had to go to to better ourselves to become better people, now think that they are a net detriment to the country. While we're talking about colleges and universities, out of Chicago, Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel is reminding everybody why no one likes him. Uh, He has created this new proposal where kids will not be allowed to have diplomas. They will not be allowed to graduate high school unless they either have a job or have a college acceptance or take what is called a gap year program that the uh, city will set up, or enroll in the military. If you don't do one of those four things, starting in 2020, you will not be allowed to graduate from high school. This is one of the dumbest fucking things that I've heard from a politician in a long time. And granted, there's been a lot of dumb shit this year because we've got Donald Trump as president. But Jesus Christ, what is the purpose of this? It's hard enough for people to find a job as it is. It's even harder if you can't get a high school diploma. Jobs don't magically fucking sprout up because government demands that you have a job, okay? College acceptances don't magically appear because government says you have to go to college. Even the military has been going through cuts in enrollment or enlistment, rather. So even if you wanted to join the military, there's no guarantee the military would accept you. So this whole proposal is being put in place because it's supposedly going to benefit students, but instead what's going to end up happening is it's going to make it harder for people who are already on the margins, people who are already lower performers, who come from poor families, anyone who doesn't have the resources that they need to get a job or a college education or to get into the military. If they don't have that already, the government is just going to stand in their way and make it even harder. And then that's not even getting into folks like me who would be a, quote, success under Emanuel's policy. I graduated high school at 17. I was enrolled in college. But guess what? Two years later, I was a homeless college dropout. Under Emanuel's policy, I would be a success, whereas it would make more logical sense to try and structure your K-12 through education and structure your public education system in a fashion where people can enroll in college and actually afford to stay there instead of having to face dropping out because the politicians keep increasing tuition over and over and over again. Rahm Emanuel is a fucking idiot. All right. I don't know how Chicago elected him as mayor. My assumption is he spent a shitload of money to buy the seat, but the man is an idiot. I hope the people of Chicago recognize that, and this, uh, this entire proposal is total bullshit. Uh, so last political story, I told y'all we were going to go through this quickly. Uh, George W. Bush and Bill Clinton are part of a uh, presidential leadership training center that the two of them and uh, President George H.W. Bush and the Lyndon Bain Johnson people uh, pieced together. And one of the highlights of that particular program is there's a Q&A with Clinton and Bush uh, at near the end. And I wanted to play a clip of it because you kind of get the impression that both of these guys uh, don't think too highly of the current occupant in the Oval Office. If somebody wants to be President of the United States, is the quality that is most important hard work, intelligence, optimism, luck. What do you think it takes for somebody who says, I want to be president, I want to be like you, I want to be like you? Humility. I think it's really important to know what you don't know and listen to people who do know what you don't know. I also think you have to begin with the end in mind. That is, you have to say, yeah, you got to win the election. But why in the heck are you running? 
That's the other thing I noticed about him. When he ran for governor against Ann Richards, he didn't say Ann Richards is a klutz. He said, I want to be governor because I want to do one, two, three things. A couple of them I didn't agree with, but he had an agenda. If you, if you want to be president, realize it's about the people, not about you. Now, I agree with every word of that said by both of them. But again, humility. Who could they possibly be talking about? Maybe the guy that talks about how he's very rich. It's about the people. It's not about you. Who could he be talking about? Maybe the guy that actually isn't that very rich and is using his campaign account to pay Trump organization for legal consulting for his son. Now, I've never been part of this particular presidential leadership center or whatever it is. I would love to go through it just so that I could have W and Clinton in the same room together. And it gives me, uh, what's the word? It doesn't really give me chills per se. It makes me shudder a little bit to think that theoretically a President Trump could become part of this organization in four years. Ugh. All right, so let's talk about some criminal justice news. Uh, out of the Fourth Circuit, it's not really criminal justice related yet. We're going to talk about constitutional stuff first. Uh, out of the Fourth Circuit, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals has ruled that the Rowan County commissioners here in North Carolina uh, have been violating the Constitution with the way they open their meetings with prayers. Uh, the way it was set up, only commissioners could give the prayers. They were not allowed to use any people from uh, the community. And given the fact that all of the commissioners happen to be Christians, 93% of all of the prayers specifically referenced uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, and several of those prayers specifically said that the Lord Jesus Christ was the only way to salvation, and he hoped that the people in the room would come and uh, join the Lord. Everyone was required to stand during the prayers, um, and essentially the Fourth Circuit went through the particular Rowan County practice, as well as the history of the First Amendment's Establishment Clause, uh, to find that the way this was being carried out crossed the line. So for those of you who are not familiar with the text of the First Amendment, it says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's one of the first clauses within uh, the First Amendment. So one of the issues there has been the practice of opening meetings with an invocation. It's something that has happened since before the country's founding. So the argument goes that the First Amendment was never intended to prohibit that because it was something that took place right around the time that the country uh, was adopting both the Constitution and the amendments. But the particular way this was done here became an issue. A lot of other public agencies, uh, the North Carolina General Assembly is a good example, will bring in ministers from different faiths, and most of the invocations are non-denominational. Uh, so that case is out of Salisbury, North Carolina. Would not be surprised to see it go up to the Supreme Court at some point to kind of see how that all shakes out. Because what happened was the district court found that the county commission had violated the Constitution. A three-judge panel of the Court of Appeals ruled two to one that it had not. And then the Fourth Circuit heard it en banc and ruled 10 to five that it in fact had. So there's a split there within the circuit. 
Uh, I don't know if there are splits between circuits, but at least within the circuit, the 10-5 vote uh, could end up putting this case on the Supreme Court's doorstep. There's been a lot of non-case-specific but good journalism out this week. I don't know if y'all know Ellen McGirt. She is a uh, very famous columnist with Fortune magazine. She has a daily column with them. And she talks a bit earlier this week about Nelson Ellis, who is an actor on True Blood who died of a drug overdose fairly recently. And in that piece, she talks about our treatment programs that we use to deal with addiction and notes that a lot of them are missing out on on what we consider like best practices. Like some programs are much better than others, but other ones that don't work, it's because they don't do basic stuff, you know? So one of the things that is missing a lot of the times is, you know, people who have gone through that experience are deliberately shut out of the program, uh, even though those would be the type of folks that you would want to get advice from on what would could potentially work or what doesn't. You know, I liken it to taking the bar exam. There's no degree of telling a law student that everything is going to be okay that is as effective as telling that same law student, hey, I almost had a mental breakdown a week or two before the exam. I came through it okay. It's normal to feel like you're not going to figure it out. You know, it's just a matter of connecting with people uh, that is easier to do when you have a shared experience. So I will link Ellen's column. It's very good. It's also not very long, so you can get a lot of detail in a short period of time. Uh, also out of the New York Times, there was a story also on addiction relating to lawyers. Uh, I know that's not something that people have a whole lot of sympathy for because a lot of people don't like lawyers, um, but addiction and drug abuse in particular is uh, incredibly high in my profession. So the New York Times had a story about a particular uh, attorney who died of a drug overdose and kind of chronicling the last year of his life before that took place. So I will link that as well. Uh, Teen Vogue, uh, it, which is, blows my mind that I'm saying that in a podcast, Teen Vogue had a great column as well on the importance of police doing better in their interaction with civilians. Uh, We've also got two stories that are not exactly criminal justice related, but kind of are. Uh, Out of Connecticut, Aaron Tucker uh, was recently released from prison, had one shirt to his name, one dress shirt that he had put on to go to a job interview early in the morning. He hops on the bus, heads to this job interview, and discovers a car getting into a one-car accident. The car flips Uh, And Tucker actually has the bus driver stop, misses his job interview so that he could get out and go help the driver, takes the only dress shirt he has and actually wraps it around the guy's head because he was bleeding from uh, the accident. So I'm going to link that. It's one of those feel-good stories that, you know, I don't know if I were in that situation. I'd like to think I would still go and help. But you got to imagine that's terrible that you're, you're just getting out of prison. You don't have a way to work. You're on your way to your only job interview. And you've got to choose between doing what's right and self-preservation. I like to think I would do what's right, but I can't make any guarantees on that. But props to that guy. Uh, Out in, I think it's Idaho, a news station tweeted out a story about a bank robber. Uh, The text reads, would-be robber arrives early at banks to find doors locked with a link to the story. But the picture they chose to use was Black Lives Matter activist Duray McKesson, uh, getting arrested at a protest in Louisiana last year. Um, so that was, we're going to use that as our new story to jump off in the Law 140 section uh, in the back third of this episode. But that particular news affiliate screwed up royally, retracted the, uh, deleted the tweet, and issued an apology. 
in bona fide actual criminal justice news. I think this week what we're going to do is we're going to start on the West Coast and kind of zigzag across to the East Coast because, as I mentioned, I've got a lot of papers of stuff here. So in Washington, a Seattle jury, a federal jury, uh, awarded a $15 million uh, judgment to the family of Leonard Thomas, uh, who was an unarmed black man who was improperly executed by a SWAT team, a uh, SWAT sniper, directly in front of his kid, uh, I think about a year or two ago. But the interesting point to that story is not just the judgment, but that the SWAT commander for that particular raid who botched the whole damn thing is now the Lakewood police chief in Washington because we believe in rewarding incompetence in this country. Uh, in Oregon, the legislature is considering a bill to uh, – the Washington Post says decriminalize. That's not quite the right terminology. What they're doing is they're going to defelonize uh, a lot of drug offenses, dealing with heroin, meth, and some other things because they're spending so much taxpayer money locking up addicts rather than trying to have them treated – and making all these people felons just makes the problem worse. So it's not decriminalization. When you decriminalize something, you know you can theoretically get like a fine, but it doesn't show up on an arrest record or anything. Uh, here, they're going to move it from being a felony, which has a lot of collateral consequences, to a misdemeanor, which still has collateral consequences, but it's not nearly as serious. Uh, down in California, California had a lot going on this week. Police in Merced, California... Uh, busted up a lounge party, theoretically, to arrest one person, but in the process, just completely beat the shit out of several people that were just hanging out at a bar. Uh, and this, of course, was all caught on cell phone video because the first rule of Fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are on camera. So there's cell phone video of this going on, including one guy being shot at point-blank range with a uh, one of those little beanbag guns. So that was in Merced. In San Diego, California, a particularly gruesome video was uh, put on Twitter where a canine was basically snacking on a guy's arm at length. He is face down on the ground, compliant, handcuffed, and the dog is just chomping away, enjoying a snack. Uh, that goes on for a solid like 30 seconds. It's really, it's really friggin' gruesome, but we will link to that as well. Uh, in Bakersfield, police punched... Tatiana Hargrove in the face and released a canine on her uh, because they had somehow confused the five foot two, 115 pound, 19 year old black girl who has hair uh, with a suspect whose description was 25 to 30 year old, bald, black man weighing 170 pounds and standing at least five foot 10. Uh, California is taking this whole maxim of all black people look alike a little bit too seriously when you can't distinguish between a teenage girl with hair uh, against a guy who is bald. But that was in Bakersfield. And then in Santa Ana, uh, police beat and tased 22-year-old Jesus Martinez after he was compliant and on the ground. And this, of course, was on cell phone video as well. I tell you, thank God for social media, because all of this stuff going on, this is all just from the past week. All of these stories we're going to get to have only been since last Monday. You know, without having iPhones with cameras and being able to put them on Twitter or Facebook, a lot of this stuff would never get known. So those four stories are out of California. Uh, in Nevada, Washoe County Sheriff's deputies were partnering with the U.S. Marshal Service trying to uh, get a fugitive, a Eugenia Corona, 
who had skipped his parole or probation, whatever it was. I think he didn't check in with his probation officer. So this is on dash cam where Corona is in the driveway on his knees with his hands on his head and his fingers interlocked. And the Washoe County Sheriff's Department lets the canine attack him anyway. So that particular Cujo gets to have a snack for a bit. Uh, Over in Texas, Leonard Crouch Jr. of the Texas City Police Department uh, arrived on the scene of an auto accident where Jim Mabe was having a heart attack and dying. And rather than actually provide medical assistance to Mabe, Officer Crouch decided to steal the $2,400 in cash Mabe had on him to go buy gifts for his family. And this was all caught on Crouch's body cam. So we got a thief there in Texas City, Texas. In Round Rock, Texas, Ranger Michael Smith uh, brake checked a guy. You know, brake checks is where you're in front of another car and you slam on your brakes to try and get the guy to, uh, you know, hit you or back off if they're following you too closely. Uh, Well, essentially, he brake checks a David Van Curen, who does what a lot of motorists do, gets in the other lane, goes past him, and flips him the middle finger. So Smith thought it would be appropriate to turn on his lights, pull the guy over, have his gun drawn, and admits that he had absolutely no basis at all whatsoever for pulling the guy over because there are cameras running, and he's talking to another officer. uh, And Smith says that, He had no basis for initiating that stop or drawing his gun. So that's in Round Rock, Texas. In Houston, Texas, police announced that they're going to stop field testing drugs. Now, when I first saw the story, I was excited because these field tests are notoriously inaccurate. We talked in one of our earlier podcasts about a guy that spent 90 days in jail because drywall tested positive for cocaine. These field tests are incredibly inaccurate. Anyone who tells you anything to the contrary has never dealt with them on a regular basis. But no, the police aren't stopping because the tests don't work. They're stopping because apparently some of these new opioid powders, uh, they're concerned that their officers could die from having them be in contact with their skin. Uh, Fentanyl or difentanyl or some kind of something. Uh, They're concerned for officer safety, so they're going to stop field testing for drugs. I don't really care about the motivation. I mean, this is still progress for Texas. We get a little bit too caught up in the motivation game. If we're going for the same objective, then so be it. So that was in Houston. There's a story out of Garland where the IRS shut down a bridal shop over back taxes, seized the business, and had all the assets sold off in the span of a few hours before the family could even appeal or do much of anything else. Uh, So I will link to that, but that just knows that uh, it's not just state and local police that screw up. The federal government is pretty vicious as well. Uh, Up in Oklahoma, the district attorney released a statement on that third mistrial of Shannon Kepler we mentioned to you last week. Uh, I will link the statement, but essentially he's laying the groundwork to have that case dismissed because he mentioned the importance of preserving uh, public resources as they're trying to put murderers away. So Shannon Kepler is going to walk up in Minnesota. Minnesota had a week uh, in North Minneapolis. Police shoot two different dogs. They were approaching a home. A pair of dogs came out who are, quote, physician prescribed support animals for one of the kids that lived in the residence. You can see on the security camera from the home that both of the dogs are wagging their tails and not threatening in any way. Uh, officer decides to shoot them both anyway. So thankfully, both of those dogs are still alive at the moment. Um, but of course, the owner's got to deal with the vet bills. 
So that was in North Minneapolis. In South Minneapolis, police somehow managed to kill an Australian woman, a Justine Damon. She called police to report a possible assault in the alleyway near where she lived, and she ended up being the one shot and killed by the officers. And we don't know what happened because the officers had their body cameras turned off. Because if we have learned anything about the use of body cams, it's that police have a tendency to turn them off before they're about to do something questionable. So that lady is dead. Uh, also, y'all might remember Geronimo Yanez, the guy who summarily executed Philando Castile and then got away with it. Not only does he get away with murder criminally, but the Minneapolis Police Department is paying him $48,500 as part of a separation agreement between the two. So he will be free to go be a police officer somewhere else and essentially gets a year's salary in the process. So just know, if you want to go kill someone in Minneapolis, you too can get paid $48,500 as long as you have a badge before you do it. In Illinois, Chicago cop George Granius had beat medical assistant Patassa Johnson, beat her severely. Uh, she was pulled over for suspected DWI, uh, handcuffed, and he decided to beat her anyway. The city is going to pay out $185,000 as a settlement. That is not the news story. The news story is that as part of discovery, uh, the lawyers for Ms. Johnson discovered that Granius had dozens and dozens of websites that he had purchased uh, that have a number of racial epithets in them that he was trying to create. So this guy is essentially a easily discovered racist working for the Chicago Police Department, and no one ever happened to notice in their due diligence. In Missouri, a uh, nine-year-old in Kansas City, Aaron Cordell Shanklin James, was hit and killed in another high-speed chase. We've talked about these. It seems to be another one pretty much every week. Um, but essentially, police were trying to pull a guy over, the guy did not pull over, and rather than take down his license plate and arrest him at some later point in time, uh, the officer decided to just speed along, and in the process, this nine-year-old was hit and killed. Uh, unfortunately, this is not the only high-speed uh, execution to take place this week. We're going to get to another one here in North Carolina in a bit, but that was in Kansas City, Missouri. In Dayton, Ohio, the Jeff Sessions uh, Attorney General Beauregard, Department of Justice, has announced they will not pursue federal charges against the officer who killed 22-year-old John Crawford III. I don't know if y'all remember that story, but this was the guy that went into the Walmart to buy a BB gun. When he picked up the gun, another shopper called the police to say, hey, there's a black man with a gun. And rather than think for a minute that he's in the gun section buying a fucking weapon that's being legally sold, uh, police just walk in and promptly shoot the guy dead. So the state did not prosecute him, uh, and now the federal government will not be prosecuting that officer either. So once again, we have uh, state-sanctioned murder happening in Ohio. Uh, down in Florida, Orlando police happened to pull over the only black state's attorney in the entire state, and they had no justification for it. So we learned all this from their body cam footage. And I'm going to link the video to you. It's actually kind of funny, but they pull the woman over, and she starts asking why she was pulled over. And the officer first says that they check tags all the time, and then says that the window tint was too dark, but he didn't have a tint measure. Um, essentially it was all just one of those things where she happened to be driving while black and she got caught up in it. Now, the irony of this case, and I don't know if you would call it irony, if there's some better phrase for it. So this is the state's attorney 
who announced publicly that she would never seek the death penalty against any defendant ever for any reason. Uh, there was a case where a guy had actually killed a police officer. She decided that she would not seek the death penalty against him, and this created a huge uproar within the law enforcement community. Uh, Rick Scott, the governor of Florida, actually removed her from all potential death penalty cases, uh, saying that this was a conflict of interest that she has decreed on the front end to never seek the death penalty. Uh, so that case is pending. But, you know, it's one of those things where because she made this choice, whether you agree with it or not, she's being screwed over by the law enforcement apparatus in Florida. Uh, speaking of being screwed over by the law enforcement apparatus in Florida, there's a detailed piece in the New York Times about uh, St. Augustine where a police, um, basically a police officer killed his girlfriend. The local sheriff's folks didn't bother to investigate, ruled that it was a suicide, end of story. A different officer was assigned to investigate because of public pressure, and essentially the sheriff's department made it their life's mission to smear this particular officer and impede his investigation. So I will link that in, uh, that story as well. It's actually rather lengthy. Uh, up in Georgia, DeKalb County police officer P.J. Larsheed uh, decided the best way to arrest a homeless person is to beat them senseless. Uh, a 38-year-old black woman, Katie McCreary, had asked someone at a gas station for money. This was reported to police, and cell phone video was released where McCreary is on the ground, and there's a, there's a period of time where she's not even moving. She's just there, um, and Larshi just starts beating her with the baton anyway because he can. Uh, there's a particular point later on where he threatens to shoot her when she's trying to cover her head from getting hit with the baton over and over again. So this was in DeKalb County, Georgia. Uh, the lawyers for Michael Slager, the officer that killed Walter Scott by shooting him in the back and then planting a taser on him that Jeff Sessions gave a sweetheart plea deal to, uh, he has not been sentenced yet because his attorneys want transcripts from the grand jury testimony, uh, or the grand jury statements, rather, that the prosecutor made in the uh, state prosecution because as part of the plea deal, there's this stupid-ass clause where the prosecutor is going to try and convince the judge to do something the judge has no legal power to do. It's all a dog-and-pony show, but the defense attorneys want the grand jury transcript to make sure that whatever the U.S. attorney says as part of this process uh, doesn't uh, go against whatever was said at the grand jury level. It's all, like I said, it's all a dog-and-pony show, it's all a joke, but this is a way to delay Slager's sweetheart sentencing a little bit longer. Uh, in my home state of North Carolina, the Charlotte-Mecklenburg police have dealt with Philip Barker, who is one of their own officers, was responding to an accident scene, driving more than 100 miles an hour, and in the process hit and killed 28-year-old James Michael Short near downtown. And the police chief, continuing the, the pattern of being totally fucking tone deaf when their department kills people, which is a fairly regular occurrence, noted that, quote, both families are devastated. Well, I'm sure they are, but guess what? One of the families still has someone who's alive. The other one is just going to be mildly inconvenienced with a misdemeanor charge and will go on with a job somewhere else for the rest of his life. Uh, in Washington, D.C., the woman who was arrested for laughing at Jeff Sessions' confirmation hearing uh, had been, uh, has that case has been thrown out. So essentially, this woman uh, laughed. The uh, Capitol Police took her out saying that she was disrupting the event, and then they arrested her for resisting arrest based on her comments after she was told to exit the room. 
And what a judge said was the initial laugh was incidental and not a disruption, so there was no basis for the police to ask her to leave. So the subsequent stuff for resisting arrest was bogus bullshit. So that was in D.C. Uh, In Maryland, there is a situation where Calvert County deputies uh, beat and strip-searched Adrian Hall, who was initially pulled over for speeding, and they basically tore the guy's car up and tore him up trying to find drugs. They never actually found anything. The ultimate charge against him was not speeding, but with impeding the investigation because he wasn't cooperative with the unlawful strip search and destroying his car. They never actually found any drugs. Uh, It's kind of like in North Carolina where you get arrested for resisting arrest and nothing else. So I'll link that story up in New Jersey. An undercover deputy with the Passaic County Sheriff's Office uh, ended up being recorded on a guy's camera phone illegally searching the dude's minivan. And it's actually funny. So the guy's walking across the street saying, hey, what the hell are you doing in my minivan? And rather than say, I'm an undercover police officer, I'm searching your vehicle, uh, essentially the officer closes the door and tries to walk away uh, like nothing ever happened. So this particular officer was busy committing a felony, got exposed on video, uh, and that is in New Jersey. In Massachusetts, the Boston Globe has a very sad story out of Hingham. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Um, But essentially, 26-year-old Austin Reeves uh, was distraught over a conversation he had had with an ex-girlfriend and went into his room, locked the door. The ex-girlfriend was concerned he was going to hurt himself, so she called police to do a mental health check. The police arrived. Um, The parents said, hey, yeah, he's got a gun in the room, but he's not a danger to himself. He just needs to decompress a little bit, chill out let him sleep it off, he'll be fine the next day. And rather than do that, the police actually brought out a SWAT team and surrounded the house and moved the family out of the way and brought in more and more and more police officers. So uh, Reeves ended up taking his own life. Um, Again, a repeat occurrence that you've heard in numerous podcasts since we've started this just back on May, Uh, that calling the police to deal with mental health issues is a fantastically ill-advised idea. It doesn't end well for anybody. Uh, If someone is suicidal, one of the easiest ways for them to end up dying is by having the police get involved. So that was out of Massachusetts in New York. To show that callousness is not restricted to the police, a man was actually hit by an MTA bus, and the bus just kept on driving. The man was left in the middle of the street uh, to bleed and he's in a critical condition at the moment, is not dead yet, but that happened in New York City. Uh, Also in New York City, a new report was released showing that all of this effort to end stop and frisk and these other unconstitutional policies has not affected the fact that the New York Police Department continues to target blacks and Hispanics uh, at disproportionate rates. So New York City is about 50% white, but they're only about 20% of their drug arrests, even though drug usage is comparable between the races. Uh, So about 80% of all drug arrests in New York City are people of color under Mayor Bill de Blasio, or de Blasio, however the hell you pronounce it, Uh, even though de Blasio has, has touted himself as a great reformer, and the police have certainly fed into that by turning their backs on him and claiming that he sold them out. But the reality is he hasn't really done much. So that's in New York. And to show that it's not just American police who are crazy, up in Canada, the Regina Police Service had a press conference about a man who had been, uh, quote, in contact, unquote, with one of their canines, uh, a Linus Kaysay Weissamet, 
uh, had stepped out onto his porch to smoke a cigarette and just had the misfortune of stepping out at a time that police were chasing two other people. And the canine came out and attacked Linus on his front porch and completely destroyed the man's arm. Like, he's not going to be able to use his arm pretty much ever. Uh, so the police had a press conference to talk about it. It really wasn't that big a deal. It was just contact. Nothing really happened. Well, Linus actually showed up at the press conference, pulled up his sleeve, and started showing it to the media. Uh, so that became a circus, but I'll link to that as well. So it, it's one of those things where it's like, I don't want to feel good knowing that other countries' police can be just as crazy as ours are, uh, but given how much shit we wade through on a weekly basis here, I kind of feel slightly better, a little bit, not really. Um, so, folks, that covers the law enforcement, criminal justice news from the past week. Again, those three pages are just the stories that have happened since our last podcast last Monday. So we're going to get into Law 140. We're going to piggyback off of last week's defamation episode to talk about defamation when it involves a public figure. Now, before we get into the meat and potatoes of this particular segment, I want to give a shout out to Erica Phillips of Idaho. Uh, She is one of our Law 140 lovers on the Patreon page, and she has picked out our topic for one of the other podcasts happening this month. So I don't know if it's going to be next week or the week after, but we're going to have a Law 140 on juries and jury selection. Uh, I've got a guest lined up, Assistant District Attorney Jeff Neiman out of Orange County, North Carolina. Uh, I think very highly of him. I've known the guy going back to like 1999. It feels like forever. Uh, But I'm going to have him as a guest for that particular Law 140. So, Eric, I appreciate the uh, suggestion. For this particular segment, we're going to talk about defamation some more, but we're going to talk about it in the context of what is called public figures. Now, if you remember from last week's Law 140, we have defamation as an umbrella term for libel, which is written, and slander, which is spoken. And to prove defamation generally, the plaintiff has to prove a few things. They have to prove that there was a statement of fact made that is false, uh, that that statement of fact was published to third parties, and that they were damaged as a result of it. So normally you've got those four elements. There's a statement as opposed to opinion or hyperbole. Uh, It was false. It was published to at least one other person, and someone was damaged as a result. And then we've determined that there are certain statements that just by their nature are so bad, they're what's called defamatory per se. So something that alleges that you have committed an infamous crime or you have a, uh, a loathsome disease or an infectious disease uh, in the case of women, if a woman was unchaste, uh, or if it tends to impeach you in your profession or otherwise subjects you to ridicule or contempt or public disgrace, uh, those statements are considered defamatory per se. Damages in that case are presumed. Even if they're small, it's just the statements are so bad that when you make a false statement about those topics, uh, it's presumed that damages exist. Now, Going back to that tweet from the Idaho media station where they had talked about this bank robber and attached a picture of DeRay McKesson, one of the folks I talked to on Twitter, at Superman Hopkins, uh, asked a question. He said, does DeRay have any kind of remedy in this particular situation? And the answer, unfortunately, is probably not. 
if DeRay was a normal, regular, everyday American, had absolutely no public profile at all, then the answer would be yes, because having his picture attached to a statement about a bank robber uh, would be a false statement of fact, and it's something where it would probably be defamatory per se, because you're implying this person has committed an infamous crime. But the courts have determined over time that there's a separate element that has to be proven when you're dealing with someone who is more high profile, and it's called actual malice. And this only applies for people who are considered public figures. Now, this all materialized out of a United States Supreme Court case called New York Times Company versus Sullivan. And this happened back during the civil rights era. So essentially, a, uh, a newspaper ad was taken out in the New York Times back when people still read newspaper ads and that was still a thing. And it related to uh, civil rights in Alabama. And you might recall that Alabama had a very uh, tarnished history when it came to the civil rights movement. Uh, Birmingham was actually called Bombingham due to the sheer number of bombs that were exploded in that city during the civil rights era. So in this particular ad, people had uh, stated that the police in Alabama were abusing people of color, were abusing black folks. And one of the politicians in Alabama filed suit, making the argument that because the ad uh, condemned the police and because the government that he was part of uh, funded and oversaw the police, that by extension, the ad attacked him, had libeled him. So he filed a defamation suit, and at the trial court level, actually won. He actually got a jury verdict in his favor. And when that case was appealed, the question came up to the Supreme Court as to whether or not uh, this actually was this kind of roundabout justification for supposedly being defamed, whether or not that violated the First Amendment. And the court said yes, and in the process went through the history of the First Amendment and also talked a bit about the Sedition Acts that were passed soon after uh, the founding that prohibited any kind of criticism of the federal government. So after going through that history, part of their ruling said, quote, the constitutional guarantees require, we think, a federal rule that prohibits a public official from recovering damages for a defamatory falsehood relating to his official conduct unless he proves that the statement was made with actual malice, that is, with knowledge that it was false or with reckless disregard of whether it was false or not. So that became the initial creation of the actual malice standard for public figures. And in cases since then, you have, uh, for example, Curtis, Pu Curtis Publishing v. Butts, uh, Gertz versus Welch is another big one, Hustler Magazine versus Falwell. You have public figures, which are any government official as well as any other person that is pervasively involved in public affairs. And then you also have what are called limited purpose public figures, which are people who, in the legalese is, quote, have thrust themselves to the forefront of particular public controversies in order to influence the resolution of the issues involved. Um, those types of figures have to meet that fifth element, that piece of actual malice, in order to recover in a defamation suit. So applying that to DeRay, 
um, he's a public figure. I mean, that's a, that's a given. Whether he is treated as a bona fide public figure outright because he's pervasively involved in public affairs or whether he's a limited purpose public figure because he has thrust himself into issues relating to uh, police reform and equity and discrimination, all this other stuff. Um, if he were to file a defamation suit against this Idaho media station, he would have to meet that element of actual malice. Uh, now, that's not saying that's not impossible. You know, one of the things I would look at uh, if he decided he wanted to go down that path would be to look at past coverage and see if the stories or any editorials or anything like that uh, have been particularly hostile towards him because you can use that as a basis that this wasn't just negligence, but that it actually was deliberately malicious. Um, but in all likelihood, he wouldn't be able to meet that standard because it's designed to be a high standard in light of the First Amendment. So, folks, that's going to wrap up this abbreviated Law 140 for this week. Uh, thank you for listening in. Please make sure to join the conversation online. We are at Fiskamall on Twitter. Use the hashtag, hashtag FSCK. Uh, I appreciate you listening. We're only at about 48 minutes. I'm trying to get us back down to 30 uh, but we'll see what happens in the week ahead. So on behalf of myself, Mike the Sound Guy, thank you so much for listening, and I hope all of you have a blessed week. <laughs>